0: ACOB recently released guidelines regarding the prediction and prevention of preterm birth. So where are we today in identifying patients who are at great risk, and how can clinicians put that information into clinical practice to provide significant outcomes? I'm your host, Ana Maria Rosario, and with me today is Dr. David Stone, a practicing OBGYN in the metro Detroit area for over 20 years. He is also a fellow of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology and a member of several national organizations, including the American Medical Association and the Society of Robotic Surgeons. Dr. Stone, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. Well, let's first start off with reviewing the information from ACOG regarding prediction and prevention of preterm birth, which is commonly referred to as Practice Bulletin 130. Can you summarize that for us? Certainly.
1: The Practice Bulletin number 130 that's found in the Green Journal, as we call it, in the ACOG, American College OBGYN, came out in October of 2012. And at that time, we really saw in that Practice Bulletin some of a framework or a groundwork by which we could see that evidence based medicine gave us the tools to say that this is what we should be looking for in patients during prenatal care who may be at greater risk of a preterm birth, and what to do with those particular patients given their background. In particular, the idea that. There was progesterone supplementation for patients who had a history of preterm birth. And then there was also the idea of using a particular progesterone, a vaginal progesterone suppository, for those patients who have a high risk of preterm birth with the current pregnancy when they're found to have a short service. And so those two categories are significant categories when it comes to the areas of preterm birth that we were not quite certain of in terms of direction, uh, we didn't really have a good feel prior to that particular Green Journal article as to where to go with management, but it really kind of set up a course for us to really hold ourselves to, especially when it comes to looking at things with evidence based medicine and that's really what's key here. This really did a good job of tying in that evidence based medicine to give us a sense of a vision.
0: So it's now been two years. So where are we now with incorporating this information into
1: everyday clinical practice? Well as many things, there oftentimes is a gradual acceptance of the practice of certain areas of medicine. The concerns often are that do I start practicing this medicine now? It seems like it just came out. But two years gives us a good length of time to have seen the the fruits of our labor, the fruits of the benefits of adopting these practices. In my own practice, I've seen the difference in terms of me being able to go after the information that's vital to make the best decisions for these individual patients at high risk for preterm birth, and then being able to implement a management scheme that I feel confident about because I have that practice bulletin supporting with evidence-based medicine what direction I should be taking. So in the last two years, I think more and more colleagues are adopting it. We're seeing the benefits of it. I think the patients are benefiting because now there's a confidence that's coming from the doctors, rather, and the medical team that we have a direction, we sort of have a game plan, and we can execute this and have a significant improvement in outcome.
0: What would you say are the biggest challenges or concerns in the management of predicting and prevention of preterm birth?
1: I think the biggest ones are to be sure that we change the culture in terms of how we gather the information from patient to doctor. There's some key areas that we may have not seen as significant in the past that really come to the forefront now in the present and future. In particular, looking at the person's past history of a preterm birth, knowing whether it was a spontaneous preterm birth Or was it done for medical reasons? The patient was encouraged to induce early because she had preeclampsia, as an example. We treat those scenarios differently. Also, knowing that the patient needs to come forth with better information. That can be a challenge sometimes. Patients oftentimes will not have all the information as to how many weeks they were when they delivered. They know how much the baby weighed, but they oftentimes miss out on whether they were 37 weeks or 36 weeks, which would be the difference between being term and preterm. Information can be the challenge. The other challenge, uh, quite honestly, is coverage for sometimes the treatments that we we want to implement some insurances and some programs may not provide coverage or adequate coverage for the patients to participate in the progesterone that's being offered for preterm birth prevention whether it be for short cervix versus vaginal progesterone or with preterm birth history which would be some other form of treatment of progesterone. So those two categories, oftentimes insurances may have an issue with covering it, and it's such a vital part to that management that we really hope that there's more and more adoption of that into the mainstream of insurance coverages.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Reach and I'm your host, Ana Maria Rosario, and joining me is Dr. David Stone, obstetrician, gynecologist, surgeon, and educator. So, Dr. Stone, what strategies and plan do you use in your office when you're you're speaking to patients who are at greatest risk?
1: Well, now what I do is, of course, want to take that history that's directed towards understanding what their gestational age was at the time that they delivered all their pregnancies. This can be vital to understanding whether they really fit the category of a risk of preterm birth because they had a prior preterm birth or not. The other thing is getting a good history about whether they've had prior surgeries on their cervix, whether they have had a normal term pregnancy after they had a preterm delivery that can sometimes lower the risk in terms of them having another preterm birth, whether they've had multiple gestation, which means twins or triplets or so forth, because that can change whether we can even implement a progesterone therapy in the current pregnancy effectively and see that it's going to work. So what it's done is it's helped direct me in terms of how I'm teasing out information from the patient. It helps me then take that information and automatically share with the patient the choices that we can make. If the patient has had a history of a prior preterm birth, I can counsel her about that option of using progesterone supplementation to help with moving that pregnancy hopefully away from a a recurrent preterm birth. And for those patients that even if they don't have any risk factors, we still want to incorporate now in our practice an ability to consider whether screening is something we want to do in the second trimester around 16 to 24 weeks. This is something that's somewhat new. In the past, we really didn't have a good grasp as to whether or not screening was effective or ineffective in terms of whether it would be able to help us in picking up patients that may be at risk that had no symptoms or had no risk factors. But we're seeing that roughly 50% or more of patients who may have a preterm birth had no underlying risk factors. So that's another factor that's changed in my practice, and i have now incorporated a way in which I screen patients during the current pregnancy, even if they've had no prior risk factors for preterm birth. If they have prior history of preterm birth, then yes, I would still want to screen them to see what their cervix is. And that's the second part of that piece that we learned from the Green Journal was that short cervix does matter whether the patient had a history of preterm birth or did not have a history of preterm birth. And so knowing what that cervix is at any given point in the second trimester between 16 and 24 weeks could give us a window as to whether we think this pregnancy is at greater risk or can we continue routine care in the case of a patient who has no risk factors and has no prior preterm birth.
0: Well, you mentioned progesterone. Do you think this would be a good time to talk about treatment options for these patients?
1: Absolutely. You know, progesterone has been used for many years, actually, sort of sporadically in our community. And what we found is that progesterone, which is a hormone that is provided either as an injection or as some type of vaginal application, can have multiple effects on the pregnancy that may benefit and reduce that risk of having a preterm birth. We're not exactly sure of how it works, but some of the general accepted ideas are that it may help to maintain the integrity of the cervix by helping with the matrix of the cervix, the histologic matrix of the cervix to help preserve its integrity and a little bit better. It may also help to decrease the potential for uterine activity that may result in preterm labor. So there's sort of a two-prong approach that progesterone may have on the overall pregnancy at the level of the cervix and the level of the uterus. In the past, we always thought of the cerclage stitch being used because the cervix was not maintaining its integrity. We now come to appreciate that the cerclage is really one-dimensional, and that really works to those patients that were more concerned with the cervix, but it doesn't really have have any positive effect on the uterus. So when we talk about the progesterone, we talk about it in two categories. The first category we could talk about is that patient's had a history of a preterm birth in the past, and that patient could be offered progesterone supplementation beginning at 16 to 24 weeks, and it would be given in a typically weekly injection, or in some cases, there has been uh, data supporting the use of nightly or daily vaginal progesterone for that category. The second category is using progesterone for those patients who have a short cervix. The cervix categorized as being short when we do a measurement by transvaginal ultrasound. It's an ultrasound that's placed into the vagina and looks at the length of the cervix from the external eyes, outside, to the internal eyes, or inside. So it's the whole length of that cervix that we're looking at. And when we measure it, if we see it less than 25 millimeters then we have the suspicion of it being short. And while most of the studies have looked at it incorporating the vaginal progesterone with a patient when it gets below 20 millimeters. There's been some data now looking at whether we want to use it at even as early as 25 millimeters, but the data thus far that the most established studies have looked at it less than 20 for its incorporation. So those are the two areas in which the progesterone can be used in summaries, both with patients who have had a history of preterm birth or in a patient who has been diagnosed with a short cervix.
0: How do you encourage your colleagues in regards to teaching them or encouraging them about screening and and the importance of screening and and when we look at the ACOG practice bulletin that we just discussed?
1: Well, I I think that we should make our colleagues aware of is that this is uh, information that has been very well studied. We're basing it on evidence-based medicine. That's the goal here is is not doing something that may be not well studied or does not have good data supporting it. Uh, There's very good what we call level one data which means that there's been large-numbered studies, meaning using large sample sizes, doing it prospectively, doing it randomly. So these are the very higher-level studies that really support and justify the incorporation of these management ideas. And I think that helps our colleagues to have the confidence to know that what they're practicing is good medicine. It also gives us a fighting chance and something that we... We really just kind of felt hopeless to and helpless to in the past where we didn't really have a real good direction of what should we do with these patients that have had a history of preterm birth. Do we wait until we see the next preterm labor on this patient occur before we start trying to intervene? And sometimes it could be too little, too late. So in this case, helping my colleagues understand that this form of practice is, as we talked of, been acknowledged, at least in the Green Journal practice bulletin since October 2012, and I think that helps to give my colleagues the confidence to know that it's there, it's available, it's got good evidence-based medicine to it, and it can make a profound impact on their patients' lives. And they're not just the, the child that's born prematurely, which is a significant potential impact to that individual's person's health, but, of course, to the patient they're serving, the mother of that child, their family, and how that relates to the quality of the care that you're providing to that patient.
0: Well, before we wrap up here, any final thoughts, anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to share with our listeners?
1: Yes, I, I would say that we really owe it to our patients to provide the best quality of care. This particular practice bulletin that came out in October of 2012, practice bulletin number 130, set a groundwork for us to be able to touch to and say we really have a good management scheme that we can give to patients who have had a history of preterm birth or in patients who are identified with having a short cervix. I really feel that when we practice good medicine, good quality medicine, using the information that's evidence-based, we're doing the very best we can for our patients. But I would also make our colleagues rather aware that As we move forward, we're going to be more and more held accountable for the quality that we provide to our patients in terms of the care that we're rendering. And I think that when we are practicing the very best evidence-based medicine, which I believe incorporates some of the ideas that are in that practice bulletin, 130 i think we're doing good quality medicine and that's that's going to be important for us in the future
0: so dr stone thank you so much for being with us today i know this is a topic that you're very passionate about and i will see it's come through in the discussion that we've had today so thank you for being with us here at ReachMD. well thank you i am your host anna maria rosario and you've been listening to ReachMD. to download this podcast and others in this series please
1: visit reachmd.com. thank you for listening